Infirmary Media. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we return to action as I compete with August of 1981 alongside these men. First off, dueling with August of 1971, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? That's right. I'm back, and I'm back on a losing streak once again. I win one, and then I'll lose like three in a row. And now I think the judge already has it against me for this episode. I'm starting to get that feeling. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's uh, August 1971. Let's do it. Also returning to the panel this week is the host of the Miscast Commentary Podcast, dueling with August of 1991. Please welcome back to the show, Joe Finley. Hey, everybody. I was feeling good coming in here, and then a little behind-the-scenes stuff, everybody started picking on me. So I'm going to uh, I'm gonna come at it hard, hard with these guys this week. I thought you were always hard when you do this. What, generally speaking, yes. It's just because I'm concentrating. <laughs> and as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is the multi-talented, Emmy-nominated producer, director, who has worked with some of the industry's biggest stars. All rise and welcome Judge Richard. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Uh, since you got my bio, I am now officially an Emmy winner. And uh, with a career that almost nobody has noticed that has gone through several decades, I feel very qualified to hang with you gentlemen tonight. For sure. <laughs> Dude, last night I rewatched uh, Virgin High. It had been a very long time. And then I read the bio little uh, clip you have on your website where it said that you made it for like 150 grand. And it ended up making up like two million bucks off that movie. It did. It did. And, and you know, it's funny you, you brought that up because... I literally just watched it two days ago for the first time in about 20 years because I have a 35 millimeter film print of it that's been sitting in my closet. And a buddy of mine hooked me up with a, a transfer place that you know transfers it to digital. So I had it archived on digital just for my own personal viewing pleasure. And um, you know, once my kids are old enough, I'll show it to them. Um, but I, uh, that, that movie was made for $150,000 shot in nine days. It was, it was picked up by Columbia Pictures for its first video release in the video heyday, and they paid $750,000 to 21st Century Film that I, that I made it for. And now the movie is in the MGM library, and believe it or not, I still make a few hundred bucks a year off of it. That's they awesome. Send, <clears throat> a lot of people say a lot of shady things about cinematic accounting, but if you make a movie for one hundred and fifty grand, there's not really that much they can do about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is totally true. Well, since we're... We'll get into it in a second, but the other movie, your your first movie, which is blowing, I saw the party nerds. How much was the budget on that one? Well, that one was forty thousand dollars, and um, wow. that that was that was a 
a lot of fun. And that's actually, that's streaming on Amazon Prime. So any of you that haven't had the chance to set yourself back a few IQ points in a while, really should <laughs> watch Assault of the Party Nerds on Amazon Prime. But I mean, I, 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 had, uh, I had gotten lucky right when I got out of college and I booked a beer commercial for um, Old Milwaukee Beer. And I was basically spending my time sitting on my couch eating grapes and playing my guitar because I had these checks coming in and it was really r rubbing me the wrong way because my, my father left for work at seven in the morning, came home at seven at night and uh, had a, a really a great work ethic. So I was thinking, this isn't really right. Then I, I got a job in this movie called Nightmare Sisters, which was like a five day shot on film feature film. And after finishing it, I asked the director, well, how much did this movie cost? And he said, 40 grand. So I just said to myself, if I could raise 40 grand, I could make my own movie. And uh, that's what I did. I sat with a typewriter over the weekend and wrote Assault of the Party Nerds. And, um, you know, 30 whatever years later, still streaming on Amazon Prime, entertaining some and annoying others. <laughs> it's so amazing. Oh, and amazing. just, I don't know if you know or not, but Virgin High is actually on Tubi. Oh, is it? Great. Yeah, so people can watch that for free too. You just got to uh, suffer through the commercials, but. That that's, a, right. that's a movie that shouldn't have commercials because you don't want to get you don't want to get lost in the plot it's so complex but I, I actually <laughs> watched it like a day ago and I said to my friend I said you know that's a pretty funny good movie you know what's funny about that and I noticed it in both movies because I watched back to back I watched one night I watched uh Assault of the Party Nerds. I keep wanting to calling it Revenge of the Nerds. Well, it was a rip. It was a Revenge of the Nerds ripoff, man, no doubt. Oh yeah, I mean, but that's what we were doing back then, you know. And I watched it back to back, and I noticed you had uh, Lombada jokes in like both of them. Were you like a big fan of the Lombada? I was making the movie for a company called Twenty First Century Films, and at the time, there were these dueling Lombada movies coming out. One was called Lombada, and the other one was called Lombada: The Forbidden Dance. So, yep. and when the movie came in a little short and I just had this idea, I said, we can, we can cut to a PA speaker and we can just say these dumb, funny things like, you know, don't miss the movie tonight. It will be the Bells of St. Mary starring Bing Crosby. You know, that was because it was in a Catholic girl school. And we also had that announcement <laughs> about, you know, there will be no Lombada dancing. That dance is forbidden. So it was kind of an inside joke. <laughs> to the company we were working with. And it also made the movie long enough to make it acceptable for delivery. That Was that company part of the Canon split off? Well, it was Menachem Golan's company. So yeah, okay, well, all right. he went off and yeah. started that company. And um, he, you know, he's a guy who some people, you know, were saying had like a checkered reputation in Hollywood and he was great to me and counting was straight up. And he, I, you know, he was an amazing ball of energy. They put out great movies. All right. I'm sorry, Mark. <sighs> Mark's giving me the look of death. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Let's get to the rules of our game. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we shall go to a final wild card round. All right, duelers, it ain't no fun if the homies can't have none. So let's play some more Dueling Decades. 
All right, let's go right down to our guest judge, Richard. Goodbye for the coin toss. All right, I'm gonna, uh, I could not find a coin. Cash is not king anymore, it's all electronic. But <laughs> speaking of decades, when I released my album, I decided to make some CDs for my friends and family. And uh, I'm going to flip the, my Double Life CD on heads is a silhouette of me, and it says Double Life. And on the back is a picture of a cake that my daughter made for me of an electric guitar. Nice. Very nice. All right, Joe, you oh, call. That's legit. I'm going to call? Okay. Uh, my gut was telling me heads, and I got kind of like a feeling so in my gut. And so I'm switching. I'm going to tails. Tails it is. Oh, man. <sighs> All right, Joe, you take control of the board and get to select our first category. Oh, wait, I don't just win? <laughs> Shit. Okay. I didn't, I, I didn't do any of the, uh, the work. I just thought, I, I just really was uh, tuning in on the calling. Okay. Um, let's go with news. Right. Okay. So starting off, I've actually mentioned this person's name before on a different news story. I was made fun of, but I'm, we're coming around and I'm going back for it. August 6th, 1991. We talked to computer scientist, Sir Tim Berners Lee, who, I had originally brought uh, on a different story when he had written the paper that had basically was the invention of what the internet would be and when he was working for CERN. And today is a wonderful day because that theory came to life when the world's first website was launched. This site is a... <laughs> is a CERN info site and it contains a number of hypertext, uh, hypertexts, which are hyperlinks as we know them. And it actually provided, uh, access to the code required to make your own websites as well as a bunch of information about CERN and the World Wide Web project, which this was the first WWW webpage. And, uh, CERN actually requested that he patent this idea and the World Wide Web project, and he refused to. He wanted it to be open source, saying, had the technology been proprietary and in my total control, it would probably not have taken off. You can propose that something, you know, you can't propose that something be a universal space at the same time, keep control of it. So he went on uh, with this invention that has now come to fruition. He was knighted by the queen. He went on to be one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people of the 21st century. And I mean, hey, how are you accessing this stuff now? Getting on a website. And August 6th, 1991 was the first. Wow. Technically, we're not we're not on a website. We're just on the internet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's August. Would you say August 6th? Right. I, I looked yes. it up for you. <laughs> we can find it. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the news round? All right, so let's go to August 10th of 1971. We're going way back, almost 40 years ago. And I typically don't try to bring the sadness with my news picks, but I feel like this one starts sad, but it's kind of like a feel-good story in the end, and it's super important. You'll see. I mean, this story, it's about lead paint poisoning and all the issues that it was that it caused, basically. And I know even myself, I never had to deal with lead paint as an issue, but I bought enough houses over, you know, the, I don't know, the last 20 years to know and read about all the lead paint and, you know, lead paint disclosures and all this shit. I bought an 1800s farmhouse some years back and it was pure craziness, all the stuff that went on with this. But at the time this article was written, lead paint poisoning, it affected 400,000 children a year. Some kids would die. Some would get like developmental issues, neurological disorders, seizures, pretty much anything bad that could happen would. 
Uh, and the pretty fucked up thing was people knew about this for decades. The government knew. They swept it under the rug. The manufacturers claimed it was safe. And they just kept making huge profits, so they kept doing it. And when lead poisoning, the epidemic in Australia actually started in 1914. They banned it the same year. So the United States, they just kept trucking along and just kept using it. Uh, and adults got hit hard with this too, but kids got the more severe cases. It was it hit them five times more because it was five times more toxic to children. And they even used it in fuel. So like they had this factory in New Jersey where they manufactured it. And a bunch of cases happened in 1924 where the workers, they would either die or they'd go insane from the toxic levels in the lead that they added to the fuel. And the government even like checked things out then. And they said there was no issue and they reopened the plant. So everyone knew about this and it, it still went on for fucking decades. And even as some of the companies refrained from using it, it was still being used. It was still in 70% of the homes that were built up until the first half of the 1900s. So towards the end of the late 60s, when this paint is starting to like chip off and fall off and dust is going out, that's where you had a ton of t- sick kids. So this is kind of where this whole thing started. So I want to give some background to this whole thing. But this is the article that we have right here. It's going to read a little bit, little piece. Uh, the article is, he'd have U.S. ban lead paint homes. And uh, it says, a petition seeking to ban lead-based paints from all household uses what was submitted yesterday to the Food and Drug Administration by Rep. William F. Ryan of New York. And he just goes on pretty much saying the same thing that I just did. Uh, but the the last paragraph is the best part of this. It says, The petition stated that the present generation is eating the walls of the 30s and 40s and that the proposed regulation seeks to protect a generation that will be born in the 80s and the 90s. And then it actually did work. I mean, as we're all aware, I mean, lobbyists control this world. And this ban didn't fully take place until 1978. But the fight began right here in 1971. And since the ban, the average lead toxicity levels in children has fell 88% from 1978 to 2014. Obviously, there's still some issues with like lead levels in water in certain areas that need to be fixed. But we're mostly good on the lead paint. And that started here in August of 1971. Sorry for the... The long introduction to that one, but I think it needed to be told. Starting with the news round is always the most boring round you can do. So thank you very much for that, Joe. No, that's good information, <laughs> though. I mean, growing up, our house always had lead paint in it, and I knew this because those were the chips that tasted the best. Yeah, they are sweet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, guys. So let's go to my news story. Matter of fact, we're going to jump 10 years ahead from Man Crush's pick to August 10th, 1981. Now, in the last few episodes of the show, baseball has come up quite a few times. I wanted to get in on that action. So, Monday, August 10th, 1981, probably was the most important day of that entire baseball season. Because that was the day that regular season play actually would resume after a two-month strike had wiped out more than a third of the season. Now, that night also, Pete Rose would become the national all-time hits leader, surpassing Stan Musial. But, you know, that's not my news story. It was the debut of a 21-year-old, 6'4", 255-pound rookie by the name of Cal Ripken Jr. He was actually called up from the minor league team Rochester to come in, and on August 10th, he was called to pinch run, scoring the winning run. Matter of fact, the, uh, the batter who hit the winning run actually used Cal Ripken's bat, so it was a sign of good luck. 
Now, tucked away in the uh, Orioles notes column of the Evening Sun from August 9th, 1981, they talk about this call-up and what they think of the young prospect. Orioles batting coach uh, stated that Ripken stands out from most of the hitters because he can get into any stance and position at the plate and feel comfortable. Sometimes players don't need to make adjustments at the plate. Maybe good hitters like Cal are just born. And then a little foreshadowing on the rest of his career, the article goes on to say, I don't think he missed any innings at Rochester, and he played every game at Charlotte. If he stays healthy, I'm not worried. Commenting on uh, Ripken's durability. Of course, Cal Ripken Jr. would go on to break Lou Gehrig's streak of consecutive games played and finish up with 2,632. So that's my news story. The debut of Cal Ripken Jr. Now, he wasn't used a whole lot the rest of the 81 season. And then in the start of the 1982 season, he was moved to shortstop rather than third base and became Rookie of the Year. But he did debut in 1981 for his hometown, Baltimore Orioles. So that's what I got for the news round. All right, so let's toss it right down to our guest judge, Richard Goodbye, for the ruling on the news round. All right. Well, you know, I, I am a huge baseball fan, so that was very engaging. But I'm a Yankee fan, so I'm not that excited about uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, taking Lou Gehrig out of the record books. I also uh, was blessed to make a donation to a charity, and one of the raffles was I won two beautiful box seats to the Dodger game that did not happen a couple of months ago. So it's not going to be baseball this week. Um, I, have, I have some fond memories of uh, in the Bronx, New York, when, uh, excuse me, in Washington Heights in Manhattan. Uh, as, I was only a little kid in New York, and I actually remember chewing on the windowsill. I actually did that. So that really, <laughs> you know, caught me emotionally. However, all of us, though, all of us would not have careers, if not, for that internet. So I'm going to have to go with the internet story on this round. Joe likes this. <laughs> but it was not, you had a very shaky start. I just want you to let you know, when you started that story, I was thinking he won the toss. I said he was kind of had an edge. He lost it. He, he got me back. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. And you're not wrong. I felt it too. <laughs> <laughs> you got him back and you picked up a point and you have control of the board. What category are we going with next? All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to grab that clicker, or if you're in Man Crush's round, I'm going to make my kid run up to the TV and turn that bad boy on. Let's talk about TV this round. All righty. Okay. I'm going to take you to August 11th, 1991, and I'm going to take you to a little old channel known as Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon, since 1977 up till this point, had not... In, uh, invested in any of their own production. They had been buying productions from other people. Today was the first day that any of their original programming aired. And it was three shows, and it was three classics. So Nick, or Nickelodeon, released three of what they called their Nicktoons. And those Nicktoons were Doug, Rugrats, and Ren and Stimpy, all airing back-to-back-to-back on the same day of August 11th. Uh, Doug aired for four seasons on Nickelodeon before it moved to ABC and did an additional three seasons in a movie. Uh, Billy West actually was the voice of Doug during the Nickelodeon run, and it was changed when it moved over to ABC. Uh, Rugrats was on Nick for nine seasons, won a number of daytime Emmys and Kids' Choice Awards through the run. Uh, it actually spawned three movies. 
uh, coming from that. And Steven Spielberg, who at the time was uh, producing, or not quite at the time, but he was producing uh, Tiny Toons and Animaniacs, said that Rugrats was the best kids show on television. Ren and Stimpy, one of the more controversial of the shows, especially to air in that kind of a time block. They were in the midst of uh, making jokes about religion and having a lot of innuendos, like running back to back with Rugrats. Uh, It ran for five seasons uh, and then found a new life when it finished and MTV bought the rights to it and it became a late night cartoon. And they also got the rights to two unaired episodes that uh, Nickelodeon did not deem fit for air. Uh, and that was also voiced by Billy West, just uh, to continue that over. People who don't know Billy West, he was also the voice of Fry on Futurama. So those three huge hit Nickelodeon shows were the beginning of their original programming, and they all aired on the same day, out of August 11th, 1991. Damn. Misery date. I hate that <laughs> game. <laughs> all right, Man Crush, what do you have for the television round? Well, I have 1971, so I'll tell you what I got. <laughs> August 1st, 1971. We're getting closer to the fall, though, so I'm glad we're going to escape this like summer television drought every week. I feel like television is going to be like a scavenger hunt to find something worthwhile, but it'll be over in a couple weeks. And But till then, I actually did get a show that debuted in August of 1971, so I'm fortunate. But before we get too excited, it's not like Joe. I mean, I don't have uh, Ren and Stimpy or Rugrats, but I do have something. I have a juggernaut of my own. Uh, however, it's the two folks that were behind the show that were juggernauts in 1971, and they maintained that status <laughs> through today. Uh, well, one of them did. Uh, the other one died in a horrible skiing accident back in 1998. However, he's still pretty <laughs> much a household name, even if, and I'm Mar- Mark, you know this story, even if my Marine buddy who washed his pecker in his like memorial <laughs> fountain in Palm Springs to rid himself of any possible SCDs that he might've just contracted that night, which in the end it, he was clean and it, it wasn't because of the fountain, but this show would last for four seasons before being canceled in 1974. And uh, although it didn't get canceled because of bad ratings, it got canceled because this famous married couple, was getting separated. And much like their marriage was getting separated, the two hosts would actually both end up getting their own variety shows after the cancellation. And that said, both shows would only last like a single season before Sonny and Cher would get reunited in 1976 to create another show. Although that show would only last two seasons and it had to be kind of awkward because she was married to Greg Allman and was pregnant at the time. So, I mean, it was kind of weird, but... Yeah, with their offspring... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think she was getting divorced from Allman, too, at the time. So yeah. It was a very weird situation. But that said, let's go back to 1971. We had the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour that, uh, that started on August 1st, 1971. And it was gold for CBS. It was pegged to be a summer replacement show, and it ended up doing really well and stuck around for 63 episodes. Obviously, four seasons, like I said before. The ratings for the show were really good once CBS moved them off the Friday Night Death Trap. Because all the good shows were there. They moved them away, and they did fantastic. They were always in the top 15 of the Nielsen's. Uh, the show would end up winning a Golden Globe for Best TV Actress. It was nominated for a bunch of Emmys. Uh, they did win one. And, but I do give you the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour, August 1st, 1971. Wow. And once again, for my pick, we're going to jump 10 years into the future. August 1st, 1981. We got another debut. MTV, music television, goes on the air for the very first time. Now, it was 
originally only available in certain households in parts of New Jersey. The first things ever said on MTV, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. And then they played The Bungles, Video Killed the Radio Star, which, okay, that's real rock and roll. So we're going to go to an article in the central New Jersey home, August 9th, 1981, in an article titled, Video Disc Jockeys to Host All Music Rock Format. Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment has already pioneered cable television with ventures such as Nickelodeon. The children's channel is breaking new ground with music television, an around-the-clock service aimed at the viewer who grew up on rock and roll. Music television, or MTV, features video jockeys and hosts for 24 hours a day and features rock videos, concert films, animation, music news, and interviews with rock stars. An inexpensive signal splitter wired to the cable input line will send the picture to the television screen and your stereo for hi-fi sound. Uh, Bob Pittman, the vice president for television programming, goes on to talk about the reason that they wanted to start MTV. And that they did a study that found that the average household keeps the television on for about seven hours a day. Now that's very similar to how people listen to the radio. So he thought to go after the young youth demographic who grew up on rock and roll, they would actually basically put radio on the television, thinking people would sit there and watch it all the time. And of course, we did for many years until they took the music away, damn them. And now there's no music on MTV, and I like to call it MTV. So there's no music there anymore. But this is where it all started, man. August 1st, 1981, the launch of MTV, something that revolutionized the 80s, kind of changed the entire music industry as well. Is MTV completely void of music now? I don't watch it enough to know that they don't have any show. Just theme songs for pregnant teenager reality shows oh, now. That's yeah. it. You got, you're, both, you're all making my case. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's the thing, because yeah, MTV was iconic at the time. In fact, video killed the radio star. Who was in that band, famous film composer Hans Zimmer. Yep. And, um, but uh, MTV is now, uh, I, I studied journalism at USC. And in fact, back in the 1985, or whenever I was, at, I was in college, my journalism teachers called it MTTV. Yes. We like it. <laughs> but to me now, so, so I'm thinking about longevity. And uh, the Nickelodeon stuff, you know, I'm glad they made all those shows that they would never get away with making now. Because everything sucks now and everything's politically correct. True. So I got to, you know, that's the tell. And I, and I have a kinship there because I won a daytime Emmy like they did for this wonderful show that's streaming on Amazon, the brainchild of Gregory J. Martin called the Bay, which I'm very proud to have a small part of be a small part of as a producer. So I've, I'm going to have to circle back to one of the great American icons of all time, which is Sonny Bono with that sidekick share. <laughs> you know, he, he wrote She Shot Me Down, which is one of the greatest songs of all time that Frank Sinatra recorded. And when he was a, a congressman from California, I know this is very controversial, but, you know, this is an adult show, so it's okay. It was one of the funniest quotes I had ever heard. This was a really long time ago. I was still basically a kid, a really young adult. When he was not asleep in Congress, somebody asked him, because he, he really became a congressman, they said, uh, Mr. Bono, what do you think of illegal immigration? And he said, well, it's illegal, isn't it? <laughs> so the round goes to Sonny and Cher. 
Yes. Well done. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you pick up a point, tie Joe, but more importantly, you have control of the board and get to select our final one-point round. And just to clarify, people are listening. I'm sorry, but, you know, my wife is an immigrant. You know, I'm the child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And and we uh, and uh, we had a you know you know, aren't we uh, all yeah. the children or grandchildren yeah, of immigrants? <laughs> yeah, but if, <laughs> even if you make a joke, you know you can, you got to be careful these days. Oh, that's, <laughs> oh yeah, I know it's and I'm Canadian. Yeah, well, we don't want people like you immigrating here. You know, you passive aggressives. <laughs> I know, right? Richard, speaking of the other night when I was watching the movie. There's a there's that scene where the uh, the guys are out in front and they're like working out and he's talking about banging his girlfriend. Oh yeah, and he said something about like she's gonna swallow his little wiggly something or other. Oh well, can we jump a few decades in my career? Because you know, I have a great western on Netflix called Justice. You know, a great thriller called Insight with Christopher Lloyd, Natalie Z, and Sean Patrick Flannery. But yeah, you know, when you write something when you're 22 and you just got out of a fraternity um, and you're ripping off Revenge, Revenge of the Nerds and Animal House, you know, you write lines like that. <laughs> when, when you rewatch that, does it like make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Like, I do not rewatch that film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I watched it with Mike Ranger the other night. These guys know him and he, he loves like yeah. schlocky movies and both of us were watching it when that line came out we both we just died we were like wow you right? totally you couldn't say yeah. that anymore i i'm i mean you know i'm both proud and horrified at the same time i mean <laughs> the honies i had i mean i just and just the the all around just chutzpah i had i just like i went for it i mean we shot that movie in five days total four days of sync sound and one day without even sound just called mos you know we're not recording stuff right meet out sound so, I mean, shot on film and finished to an answer print for 40 grand. And, and um, that thing, that movie played on TBS on New Year's Eve, like five years after I made it. Oh, wow. my God. That must have been awesome. Yeah. I mean, and you guys, I know you had Rhonda on your show. That's how I met you guys. Yeah. That was a staple on USA Up All Night. Yeah. Both, yep. both Party Nerds movies, Virgin High, Dinosaur Island, Bikini Drive, and all these other movies that I, I acted in but didn't direct. But, yeah, I mean, it was a different time. I mean. And it like I think part of the thing was Mike and I both said the same thing. We watched these on USA Up all night, so of course they were edited. You know, things right. were cut out big time, so we didn't even hear that line. And when we heard it on this part, we were just like, if I was drinking something, I would have spit something out of my mouth. It was a good. good. One. And you know what's interesting <laughs> is that when that movie came out, you know, uh, back in those days, there was like two TV channels in France, and a, a French friend of mine sent me the TV guide and. There was a picture of Clint Eastwood. It was like one and a half inches by one inch in the TV guide. And then there was a picture of me like two inches by three inches. Cause like it was an old <laughs> Clint Eastwood movie, but my movie was brand new and it was on playing on their channel five and there it played on edited. You know, it, it was art over there, you know? Oh, that is great. Sweet. Yeah, that is great. All right. With all that, I'm going to go with hot products. Third round. I think we'll we'll save movies and music for the last two for the two pointers. But let's go to August twenty seventh, nineteen seventy one. So let me tell you how this all happened. So as I'm going through newspapers.com, which is what we use all the time, I'm looking all over the place for new products because obviously it's nineteen seventy one. It's very hard to find things that are released on a particular date in the seventies. It's not like the eighties and nineties where you can find stuff. It's is a lot harder. Then I get to the last week in nineteen seventy one. I've already gone through three weeks of nineteen seventy one, and I'm like, uh, it's not looking good. And I begin to start seeing all these ads that say candies into cash. And initially I didn't bother to look into it. And I saw the ad pop up again and I was like, all right, now it's got a company name on it. It said Beck's candies. And I said, all right, 
So I went one month before, found nothing. I went one month before that, nothing. So, all right. So now I'm on to something here. It's obviously a new candy product of some sort that was released in August. So I go one month ahead and I found a different ad for the candies. And this time it was a cartoon with kids and elephant, a bunch of fruits that were singing and dancing. And it was like swinging banana, groovy strawberry, pucker power, sour grape. And all along the ad kept calling them taffy caramels. So I was thinking it was like some kind of like Werther's type shit and I don't eat those. So I didn't know. So I keep digging and I finally found, find like what they are. And there's something that we've all had. Not only have we all had them, we've all strained over opening the package of these taffies because you would rip one side and then the package would stick to it. Then you'd lose like a quarter of the frigging candy. And so while I was looking up the stuff for it, this was so much of a problem that if you go to YouTube, there's actual videos on how to properly open these candies. Matter of fact, the one that I found this morning, and there was multiple, but the first one I popped up had 20,000 views. So this is obviously a problem. (laughs) That people have been going through for quite a long time. So anyhow, so Catherine Beck Candies of Bloomington, Illinois. It's the same name that's in the ad. She made this caramel taffy. But in 1971, in August 1971, she started to add fruit flavors to these caramel taffies. And then she she initially sold them in these squares, kind of like, like a now and later looks. And somewhere around the early 80s, they changed the name to Beck's Laffy Taffy. And then they sold the product to Nestle in 1984. And a few years ago, they just sold Laffy Taffy to Ferraro, the chocolate maker from like Italy or some shit, wherever they're from. But the product has basically stayed the same, except for the shape, since 1971. So here we have the release of Laffy Taffy, rotting our teeth and pissing us off with their wrappers since (laughs) August of 1971. Matter of fact, I got one in the mail today in delivery. I'm not even shitting you. I got... Uh, for our studio, which I'm not in right now, I'm like in the fucking dungeon because of the pandemic, but one of our mics died. So Sweetwater sent us a replacement mic. And if you ever use Sweetwater yeah, before they, they send you candy, candies, yeah. sure enough, right in there, Laffy Taffy. So shit's got legs, but wow, that's what we got. August 27th, 1971, <laughs> Laffy Taffy. The only candy that can rot your teeth and pull them at the same time. <laughs> that's nuts. <laughs> It's good. But it's only got legs if you don't get diabetes, then you lose one. <laughs> you, you get two legs, That's the first five-point joke of the night. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the hot products round? All right, well, 1991 was a fun time to be a kid, fun time to stay inside and be a kid. Uh, I want to talk about the console wars a little bit, ladies and gentlemen. So 1989, the Sega Genesis came out the first 16-bit system, and everybody loved it. Everything was great. Nintendo, not to be outdone, on August 13th, 1991, released the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in North America. The system takes off immediately. Like I said, the console wars are underway between these two 16-bit systems. Uh, The system originally launched... With uh, bundled with Super Mario World, a brand new Mario game, which gets everybody's hearts pumping as it as it was back then. Uh, but you could also get games like F Zero, Pilot Wings, SimCity, and Gradius Three upon its release. Uh, the system 
is responsible for hit games like Donkey Kong Country, Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, Super Metroid, Super Bomberman, Final Fantasy VI, Star Fox, and was actually the first of those two systems to get a console version of Street Fighter II. Uh, Sega Genesis did not get the rights until the following year. Uh, it sold 49.1 million consoles over its lifetime and ranks as the number one best video game console of all time, uh, according to Games Radar and Guardian from this year. So that includes the systems up to this date, though that is to them. That is the best system that has ever been made. Uh, they mainly credit uh, its pioneering audio and its a huge leap in graphics as a major portion of that. And it came with all kinds of peripherals in the end. You got the Super Scope 6. You could get Mario Paint where you actually you got a mouse and were able to do all kinds of fun stuff on that and uh, so many other things, as well as the Super Game Boy, which would allow you to play Game Boy games on a TV for the first time ever. So huge system. What a time to be alive. August 13th, 1991. SNES. You know what you were eating while you were playing that? Chips. Laughing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe. Well, we talked about the console wars. Let's roll it back a little bit to 1981 and talk about the PC wars. Because August 12th, 1981, IBM did something totally crazy. They released model number 5150. Also known as the IBM PC, the personal computer, the very first model. Now, initially, this was an immediate success. PC Magazine wrote that IBM's biggest era was underestimating the demand for the PC. More than 40,000 were ordered the day of the announcement. Now, they found out later that about 90% of of those initial 40,000 orders were by software developers. Because the big difference here with the IBM PC was that they encouraged software developers to write software for their computer. After one year of the PC's release, IBM had sold just under 100,000 computers, but there were 753 software packages available for the IBM PC. That's more than four times the number available for Apple Macintosh a year after its 84 release. So that was kind of the stranglehold that IBM wanted to put on the marketplace. It wasn't the hardware, it was, you can write software for our hardware. It was open sourced. So that was the the big attraction. I went to the Los Angeles Times in an article dated August 17th, 1981. IBM actually took out a full page ad promoting this uh, new computer. And I'll just read for you the opening paragraph. It says, IBM is proud to announce a product you may have personal interest in. It's something that could soon be on your desk in your home, or in your child's schoolroom. It's a personal tool that can help you, something that can make a surprising difference in the way you work, learn, or approach the complexities of living. It's the computer we're making for you. That was the intro to this ad, and it kind of foresees the future of what personal home computing would be. So, August 12th, 1981, IBM holds a press conference and announces... The, uh, the release of the 5150, the IBM PC. So that's what I got for the hot products round. That's a pretty, pretty decent hot product there. Has, has some legs, as we like to say here on the show. <laughs> it does. And, you know, I was, uh, I was pretty compelled, but I got, you know, when you shifted from uh, now and later to Laffy Taffy, you lost me. <laughs> I'm a now and later guy. Uh, the gaming consoles, uh, it was a great presentation. 
and it was exciting. <laughs> but I'm not a gamer. I have to think in the same in the same for the same reason I went with Sonny Bono. Iconic. Where would we be without the personal computer? This round goes to the IBM story. All right. What was the first computer you ever got? Do you remember? Uh... Yeah, I got. I think it was a. Well, I went through college with a typewriter. So how's that? <laughs> um, electric typewriter, but a typewriter. Um, I I think it was a Toshiba. It was a Toshiba laptop, and I had PCs for the longest time because a buddy of mine was a PC guy. And so when I when it screwed up, which was like every day, he would get on the phone and help me how to figure it out. And finally, an assistant director I worked with, he just says, Gabi, buy a Mac. They don't give viruses. <laughs> and I bought my first MacBook Pro, I think, in 2004. Had it for nine years. Had another one for nine years. And I just bought a new one in December. So I, I was tortured by the PC, but I still respect it. <laughs> so when you wrote your first script, that was on a typewriter or you had the computer by then? I wrote Assault of the Party Nerds on a typewriter over oh, a weekend. Nice. <laughs> my, my, good, my good buddy, we just, we just mapped out the, the scenes on index cards. And I sat at my typewriter. He would hand me an index card and I would write the scene. Holy shit. Love it. You know, and when you consider that, it's pretty good. That's there were no amazing. rewrites. I mean, and when we made that shooting on film in, uh, in our apartment, it was just there were pieces of film taped around the wall, right? So, and we cut it like on a, this Birth of a Nation flatbed. You know what a flatbed is? It has those plates and you, right. you know, I mean, when you make an edit, I mean, you're cutting film and you're cutting sound and you're putting tape. And like, if you decide, you know, hmm, maybe I want to change that. I mean, you fucking think about it. You go to lunch for <laughs> You have to rethink all the sound. Like if you want to move one scene from one place of the movie to another place, it's not pushing a button and like needing a safe space because that was too stressful. You had to freaking take the tape <laughs> off, you know? You had to freaking take, take the tape off, hope you didn't damage the answer print. And, and six, it was 16 millimeters, really small, you know? You really, I mean, if you wanted to cut a few frames here and a few frames there, it's not like you said, now oh, take two frames off that, take two frames off that. Someone does like this, you know, and says they need a coffee break. I mean, it was a it was a freaking deal. It was physically and mentally really demanding to keep track of everything. God, it's such a difference. Oh yeah, I edit stuff now in Premiere. It's like done, and then eh, I don't like it. You're like, oh, you know that you know the last scene in the movie would be really great in the beginning, and you just take a look at it. You go, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> you want to do something like yeah. that? You're like, wait a fucking minute here. I'm going to go to happy hour. I'm going to come back see if it's still a good idea. <laughs> yeah. If you want to put it back, it's a whole nother half day's physical work. You know? Good God. That's stuff that we don't think about. I know I don't, which I should, but like when I have older movies, like now I have 1971 and you really look back at it now and you look at what they did when it's a good movie. You're like, those guys really worked to get oh, what yeah. they got there. Yeah. Yeah. Just also the idea that we had no cell phones, you know, we had no video assist on the monitors. We had to wait till the next day to see what we shot, you know? I mean, it was it's a whole nother deal. Yeah. When I started film uh, film school too, it was the exact same thing. We were editing on a Steinbeck. It was quite an experience and it really gives you a healthy respect for what you're editing and how you're editing and stuff like that. Because I still remember hanging up my little strings of reel going, <laughs> here's my two second shot that's four feet long. <laughs> right. And just even just like dissolves or like if you just watched Virgin High, all those dissolves are film opticals and the credit sequence. You know, now you sit in your computer and you design all these animated 
I mean, we had to hire an animator who had to hand make each one of those cells. And every yes. dissolve, there was a cost added and you can see the color change and it dissolves in and out. I mean, those are mechanical dissolves, you know, and mechanical, real animated titles. Like if you could just pop the title on, but then if you like Virgin High, like the title goes, it's like that costs like an extra grand, you know, on a $150,000 <laughs> movie. But I wanted it to look like a real movie, you know? Now, if you were to go back and create and produce a film using old school techniques now, how do you think that would affect the budget, the cost, the production? Well, it I mean, it, it adds a step because I, I mean, um, to actually cut film dailies and all that, first of all, it'd be, it would be hard to find people willing to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, I mean, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, Martin Scorsese said film is dead. So if he said it's dead. I, Hey, uh, it's uh, Richard. Hey, uh, you know, we're, we're going to print everything. We're going to print dailies. We're not going to have a video monitor. I mean, the makeup department would go nuts, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Shooting, when I'm shooting a, a movie now, like the ones I actually am forever proud of, I'm proud of the first ones too. And I don't, I don't hide from anything that I've done. But, you know, when I'm at the monitor directing that, like that Western in New Mexico, you know, the production designer is looking at a monitor to make sure everything's right. And the makeup person is looking at the lighting and the, the director of photography has his monitor. And I mean, everyone I think would kind of lose it, you know? But since I came from the school I came from, I need that stuff less and I do things more instinctively. I, I don't even know if you could do it, you know? Probably not. You probably couldn't get a crew together for sure. A lot of stuff happens, you know, that, you know, uh, there's no hair in the gate anymore. And that used to really happen. Yeah. And you didn't know until you got the dailies back that a shot was ruined oh. or the mag was loaded backwards or wrong. I mean, a, a friend of mine told me he worked on this movie with uh, an actor that was in one of my films, um, Paul Servino. And Paul Servino was directing it. And he had this amazing emotional monologue with tears and, and everything. And he went to change the mag, the magazine that holds the film and realized he hadn't threaded it. He didn't oh, get it. Geez. And he had to walk, he had to walk up to Paul Servino and say, hey, man. And the great punchline is Servino just turned around and said, we're not going to lunch. Let's do it again. <laughs> Attaboy. I would have the same. I had a great time working with, with Paul. And uh, yeah, but I mean, those type of things just kind of don't happen anymore. Sometimes when they're downloading footage, you'll have a DIT or like if you have an intern kind of erase a card accidentally. That has happened to me. But there's no hairs in the gate. There's just so many other things. You're literally seeing the footage as you're shooting it. People saying, how did dailies look? I was like, I don't go watch it again. I've already watched it during the day. Yeah, exactly. You know? All right. So with picking up that point, I actually tie the game heading into the final two point rounds. I take control of the board. You know what, gentlemen? I think we're going to go over to the music round. So for my entry, August 24th, 1981, uh, the Rolling Stones released their 16th British album and 18th American studio album entitled Tattoo You. You guys might be familiar with this one. It gave us the iconic Rolling Stones song Start Me Up, which actually reached number two in the United States, only to be uh, kept out from the number one spot by Arthur's Theme and Private Eyes by Holland Oates. It was the last album to reach some of the top spots for the Rolling Stones in many years. It was really their last critical success. The interesting story about this was the Stones were actually going to go out on tour, but to do the tour, they kind of wanted an album behind the tour. But they didn't have time to go in the studio and write anything. So they actually went through the vaults, stuff dating back to the late 70s, of just outtakes from other albums that they've never used before. They pieced an album together 
with Mick Jagger going into the studio by himself to lay down the vocals. And they, they pieced basically an album together from outtakes from previous albums, and it became one of their more successful albums. Keith Richards said, The thing with Tattoo You is that they hadn't stopped writing new stuff. It was just a question of time of how to put it all together before the start of the tour. So, I mean, for an experiment that really turned out quite well, uh, we got an excellent album here from the Rolling Stones and Tattoo You. So you really can't go wrong with this album if you're a Rolling Stones fan. So that's what I got. August 24th, 1981, the Rolling Stones started up with Start Me Up off Tattoo You. All right, Joe Finley, what do you got for the music round, man? All right, dude. Uh, I'm going to take you to August 12th, 1991. Uh, it was a good day for me when I was scrolling through and seeing what came out. Uh, it was this band's fifth studio album. It was the first time uh, that one of their albums was produced by Bob Rock, and it became their mega smash. Let's talk about Metallica's Black Album or also just self-titled as Metallica. The album sold 598,000 copies in its first week. Uh, it was the first of their five albums to debut at number one on the Billboard 200. It was certified platinum in two weeks. It is, this was the thing that blew my mind, the third longest charting album since the Nielsen SoundScan era began. Uh, 488 weeks, it was on the Billboard Top 200, meaning nine and a half years. It was on the chart. Just mind-blowing stuff. I mean, that means that if it would have been released during Mar like the end of Mark's month, it still would have been on the charts at the beginning of mine. So <laughs> uh, just huge numbers. Uh, in 2016, it became the top-selling album since the whole Nielsen SoundScan era began, which began in 91 as well. Uh, it was the only album to surpass 16 million copies. Uh, during that period of time, sold 31 million copies worldwide. Uh, singles on that album include Enter Sandman, The Unforgiven, Nothing Else Matters, Wherever I May Roam, and, and Sad But True. All of those singles made the top 100, and it won the Grammy for Best Metal Performance. Just a huge juggernaut for them. Uh, put them on a whole new level uh, for a mainstream audience and you know, makes them kind of the household name that maybe the thrash metal versions of previous albums didn't do. So Metallica's black album, August 12th, 1991. Wow. Yeah. That was also the first album they did after James Hetfield got singing lessons and someone convinced him that he could sing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man crush. What do you got for the music round? All right. So yo, uh, August 14th, 1971 this right here it's this band's also it's their fifth studio album and they were just coming off a concept album that sold millions of copies and it was adapted into a film in 1975 so they already had some huge shoes to potentially fill coming off such a highly acclaimed album from 1969 and with the success of that album the band initially went back to the drawing board to produce another concept album and they were going to call this one lifehouse i mean why the hell not the last album was an absolute dynamo Yet their management found the whole idea to be too complex for the fans. So the whole idea, it was to formulate a science fiction rock opera based around the idea that rock music was banned, no longer existed, and the entire population was basically, they would only get entertained by being programmed to have experiences. And then there was this other group that lived in the woods and they would use rock music to keep themselves from being controlled. 
Uh, there's more to it, but you can see where this is going. It sounded like it would have been very cool for the time. So anyway, the project got killed off by their management, right? Like I said before, and the band would end up using eight songs from this concept project for this follow-up fifth album. And shockingly, and it, Joe wants to talk all these numbers, right? And this is why numbers are bullshit, okay? Shockingly, the RAA only certified this album three times platinum, and that was in 1993, which I think is a load of horseshit. There's no way possible that this album that Rolling Stone ranks as the 28th best album of all time only sold 3 million copies. I mean, that's utter fucking lunacy. In 1971, it would peak at number four on the Billboard 200, which again, kind of goes to show you, like, this is an all-time great album. It topped in number four. So, like, numbers and everything like that, I probably couldn't even tell you who the top three were at this point. But these are the three singles that came from this. So you get won't get fooled again, Bob O'Reilly, Behind Blue Eyes. I would venture to say that the combination of Keith Moon, Roger Daltrey, and Pete Townsend, they didn't produce one bad track on this entire album. It's perfect. Even, what is it, My Wife? I know that one was supposedly, it was done for uh, Roger Daltrey was doing like a, like a side project, and they put that in the album. So that's that ninth track that doesn't really flow. Right. And that's why I want to kind of give the backstory to people don't know, because if you start listening to the tracks, you can kind of see how they were starting to be developed for that concept album. But, I mean, this album is massive. Even if you don't know The Who, you know these songs. I mean, shit, if you watch CSI Miami with David Caruso for 10 years, you would hear Won't Get Fooled Again to kick off every episode of that. So, I mean, it's literally on the best of list for everybody. It's always near the top. Rolling Stone, like I said earlier, Time Magazine. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame for in 2007 for this. Lasting historical significance. That's pretty hard to beat, even though Joe wants to bring his numbers and Mark had his... Uh... Just definitive math. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's numbers are numbers, but this is Who's Next by The Who, released August 14th, 1971. Well, it, it, it is pretty hard to beat. But since these were three fantastic presentations and they're all iconic pieces of music, and as you said, numbers are bullshit, right? So the fact that it did all that is irrelevant. So I'm just going to go strictly personal on this one. I'm not a metal guy. My mother calls the who the why. (laughs) And I'm remembering my father because my father, and this is not a downer because he led a great life. He's gone two years today and he absolutely loved the Rolling Stones and Start Me Up. The toss goes to the Rolling Stones, Start Me Up. Wow, all right. That's probably the closest round, I think, of three things that we brought in a long time. When he first came to the Rolling Stones. I mean, that really, I just, I had to go to personal because, you know, you know, numbers really aren't bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) When you look, when you look at stuff, like we do this all the time, like you look at movies and you see how they did a lot of, a lot, the box office. And then what was the movie we were talking about a couple weeks ago? Like the client, I think it was, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It made a ton of money. Who talks about the client anymore? You know, just, just because it made a lot of money doesn't mean it was a big movie. I think that was Drew, wasn't it? (laughs) It, it We're going to talk talk about iconic music. You know, currently streaming in 2020 is Richard Gabay's Double Life album on Spotify and Amazon Music, iTunes, and all the services. I mean, let's talk about some iconic music. Yes. <laughs> and numbers are bullshit. But uh, I'm really proud of that Double Life album, and I hope people go go stream it for free. Sweet. All right. So I pick up a couple of points, jump out into the lead, heading into the final game. Let's see if I can hold on to it. 
All right, so we're in the movies round. We'll go over to Muncie, Indiana in the Star Press, August 23rd, 1981 for my movie, and an article that's just titled Horror Masterpiece. An American Werewolf in London is Landis's best to date. Now, the article goes on to say, to say that John Landis, who wrote and directed American Werewolf in London, has created a horror film masterpiece? And that's an understatement of a criminal kind. To say he has found his way to bring his familiar flair for comedy into a place that laughter isn't usually would also be belittling his overall achievement. American Werewolf in London is still a film that holds up today, I think. I watched it again not too long ago. The special effects for 1981 still look kind of contemporary. I think they have a a believable real element because, again, it's not the digital. These are practical effects. And the movie just in and out just goes through horror and comedy. It kind of takes you on this journey. The article goes on to talk about how that's kind of one of the awkward things is later in the film when there's a lot of gore introduced and death, the comedy kind of plays off as awkward. But that's one of the things I like about this movie because it's so unsettling. The way that they react to, you know, your friend being murdered and turning into a werewolf. It's kind of like, eh, oh well, you know, shit happens. But that's what's kind of so disturbing about this film, I think. And it adds to that element. It's something that I've never gotten in any other horror film that it was done this well. So that's my selection. American Werewolf in London, released August 21st, 1981. All right, let's kick it over to Joe Finley for the movies round. All right, well, we uh, are very similar. We both selected a movie that features a man slowly transitioning into an out-of-control monster. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot in the, hey, what movies were released this month thing. I could have given you double impact. I could have gifted you with that. <laughs> I, you should I, have. I chose not to. Um, I started looking at the film festival circuit for 1991, and from August 10th to 25th, the Edinburgh International Film Festival was going on, and one American movie was playing there. It was a documentary, and it was Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse about Francis Ford Coppola's slow creep towards insanity while making the 1975 film Apocalypse Now. Coppola himself was quoted as saying in the film, we were in the jungle, there were too many of us, little by little, we went insane. A production that took three years and more than doubled in budget, you come across such difficulties as the star Martin Sheen having a heart attack from just the sheer stress of working on the film, plus his constant chain smoking and all that that went with it. Marlon Brando, who was being paid a million dollars a week and would show up unprepared. He would mumble a couple of lines and say, that's all I've got for today and walk off set. Uh, you had a drug-addled Dennis Hopper just improvising lines because he couldn't remember them. Monsoons taking out sets. Uh, people getting in trouble for digging up dead bodies to have realistic cadavers. Like it was, it was a thing. Uh, It is probably the best documentary about filmmaking that has ever existed. Roger Ebert wrote, the result is fascinating, harrowing film history. We feel for once we are witnessing the true story of how a movie got made. And the Washington Post wrote, as the portrait of an artist in crisis, Hearts of Darkness is unparalleled. And more recently, actually, uh, E-Critic Film wrote about the movie. We come away from the documentary with the profound admiration of Coppola, if only because he didn't kill himself or someone else. The movie, which actually was released on Stars after its uh, film festival run, uh, won two Emmys and a National Board of Review Award for Best Documentary. So it is it is a not miss. 
it is actually, in my opinion, better than Apocalypse Now. It's a much more harrowing tale, and it's amazing for anybody who loves film and filmmaking, so I give you Hearts of Darkness. All right, Man Crush, let's hear what you got for the movies round. All right. Uh, I'm not going to pander to the judge like Joe did by bringing in director's documentary, but let's go to uh, (laughs) August 1st, 1971. I mean, you talk about having some legs. Here is one about a pandemic of sorts. I mean, it kind of fits in with what's going on now. Here's a movie. It's based on Richard Matheson's classic, I Am Legend. Uh, it's actually the second of three film adaptations of the book. And I would personally give this one the nod over the other two. I'm sure most people already know about the films I'm talking about here. The first film, The Last Man on Earth, starred Vincent Price. And the later film, which is I Am Legend, came out in 2007, starred Will Smith. This particular film also starred another Hollywood great, the king of compelling dialect, Charlton Heston. And uh, he didn't disappoint in this movie with, uh, in regard to that. Uh, him talking to the dead car salesman and shit, calling him a scumbag or whatever it was. It's fantastic. Uh, but this, of course, is the 1971 classic, The Omega Man. And honestly, I mean, even though the original was only seven years prior, I could just never get into black and white movies growing up as a kid. I had a uh, 13-inch television that was black and white in my room until I was about 10. So I think I have like some kind of like black and white PTSD or something because I just can't I can't watch them. I don't know why. But anyways, this 1971 version, it's obviously it's in color. But we were talking about like the shots and things like that. The aerial shots in this movie of downtown Los Angeles are amazing. It's a great story, but there's some like 70s movies that just have like captivating. They're just captivating to look at. And this is one of them. It's it's even more amazing because they did most of the city shots on the weekend when the city was dead. So you, you, we we're talking about this before and how like old school stuff is. Right. So you're talking about like no CGI. They're not in like some huge back lot. They're doing this in downtown L.A. and they had to clear everything out. And there's lots of shots of this in this movie. So that, that right there in 1971 or probably they probably filmed this in 70 or whatever. That's just an amazing feat right there, especially in a city like Los Angeles, where there's millions of people. Like, how do you get all those people just just stay out of all these blocks like because we're going to we're doing this movie. But uh, this movie, it did about nine million dollars at the box office, which is about fifty eight million dollars in twenty twenty. So it's not too bad for a classic. Numbers don't mean shit. Yeah, it really doesn't. But we throw it out there. People like to listen to what they get. But if you're into post-apocalyptic movies, Charlton Heston, one liners, Biological warfare, deformed nocturnal mutants who speak like normal people, mm. cool cars, a 48-year-old Charlton Heston who bangs women half his age, ritual sacrifices in Dodger Stadium, and twisted endings, then the Omega Man is for you. So go see that. August 1st, 1971. You guys have really, you, you've, you've kicked it up another notch because you put me in a box here. I have to pretend to be sophisticated and go with documentary. <laughs> I have to pretend to have seen the Omega Man, although you were, your presentation was so good, I kind of feel like I almost have, and I'm going to really like it. But the fact of the matter is, An American Werewolf in London is an iconic movie to me. I saw it in the theater. It scared the hell out of me, and it made me laugh. And it inspired a lot of the tone of some of the films I've, I've attempted to make. So I, I'm, I'm going to go with An American Werewolf in London on that one. That's a, that's a tough one to beat. As yeah. soon as you said Jonathan, I was like, ah, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that a couple of, what was it? Maybe like three years ago. We, we did that uh, Hudson horror film festival. They yeah. played it in 35 millimeter and just seeing it in its original state. 
was amazing to watch. I, I still, and it, and you know, it is not, it, it is, you know, that you, you, you brought me in as the judge. I, I remember being in the theater, seeing that movie for the first time. I still remember it. It holds up incredibly well. And not a lot of movies from the early eighties hold up. This one really does. Oh, yeah. I just remembered a funny uh, thing. Uh, I, uh, I was working on a movie. Um, it's a, I don't know, we're, we're, we're running on the time scale here, but I was working on a movie and uh, I had always wanted to work with Gary Busey, who I ended to work with. One of the iconic films in my uh, development was the Buddy Holly story. In fact, I didn't know who yeah, Buddy Holly was when I saw the film. I saw the film by accident and I always wanted to work with Gary Busey and everyone had told me how difficult he was, whatever. And this producer that I had been in a lot of films for had Gary in a movie and gave me a two-line part just to be in a scene with Gary, knowing I wanted to be in it. I concurrently um, was up for this huge Dr. Pepper campaign, and it was uh, singing and dancing Dr. Pepper guy. At the final callback, which I had to leave the set of the Gary Busey movie to go to, which is a story that's really interesting, but way too long for this show. Um, <laughs> I, chose, I chose to go to the final callback because this was like a $500 gig, and I was trying to get like a $100,000 gig. And David Naughton was one of the guys, and I think David Naughton got the job. I think he was the... <laughs> singing, dancing, I'm a pepper. And um, David Naughton was a hell of a nice guy, too. What was it? Did you get to read with Gary Busey or no? That well, okay, so here, here's what happened. So I, I had, from when I was a little kid, the original Buddy Holly story poster. So when I went to work, I brought it with me. And um, I went early. I wasn't going to be working until after lunch, but I was in my uh, costume, which was a like a naval costume, a cadet. And the scene was where they pin the cadets and they kind of put the thing through, you know? Yep. Yeah, and so he was doing that to me, and I had like one line with him. And um, I, I just waited until lunch. I watched him work. And he, this was before he had had, because he had several accidents in a brief period of time. He really, he looked yeah. great. And he's, he's a really, he is a dynamic performer. Even to this day, to me, he's still good in everything he does. He came out of his trailer and I'm holding this poster. And he said, what do you got there? I said, well, actually, sir, it's the original poster for the Buddy Holly story. He said, oh, that's neat. And he just walks away. <laughs> and, and I had been warned that he's an asshole, you know? Like, oh, wow, that's kind of weird. Then during lunch, the, the guy who was the producer came up and said hello to me, gave me a hug, and I could see Gary kind of watching out of the corner of the eye, you know, like, oh, maybe this guy isn't one of the extras, you know? Should I be thinking he's looking at me weird and everything? Then my agent called me about this callback that was going to be at 2 o'clock, which was like in an hour and a half. And I said, I said, you're right, you know, I asked Gary, I wanted to talk to Gary, he was kind of an asshole. So why don't you give one of these other guys my line and I'm going to go to this callback because if I don't go to this callback, I'm not going to get, you know, right. no chance. So I get out of my wardrobe and as I'm walking to leave, because I'd been in a bunch of movies for this company, the makeup girl knew me and she said, hey, Richard, you know, see you later. And I just went up to say goodbye to her and Gary was in the chair. He said to me, uh, do you still have that poster? I said, yeah, you know, I was actually, I was kind of hoping you'd sign it for me. He said, well, I'm a little busy right now. Maybe later. <laughs> <laughs> he, he brought it up. He said, yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little busy. I mean, he asked me, did you still got that poster? I said, yeah, I do. I said, well, I'm actually going on an audition. And uh, just FYI, the Buddy Holly story means a lot to me. That's why I play guitar. That's why I want to act. That's why I make movies. To whatever extent you contributed to that, thank you very much. And I left. I went to the audition and these are also like, it wasn't cell phones all the time. When I got home from the audition, there was like 12 messages on my machine, right? So I was thinking, fuck, I got the gig because it was happening right away. 
they were from Gary and his assistant. He wouldn't come out of his trailer until <laughs> they brought my poster back. And I, I have the freaking poster right now in my garage. I could walk you guys in it. Oh. He, he, they sent a messenger to my apartment to pick up the poster. Then they brought it back to me and he wouldn't come out of the trailer until he got on the phone with me and said, do you like what I wrote? And he wrote, do you know, dear Richard, keep playing. You already drew a picture of a heart with your music. So he really is a sweet guy. You just got to get through the layers. Oh, very, man. very, wow. very interesting. Very, very interesting. And then I got to direct him. He's in a film I made called Motocross Kids. Oh, with nice. uh, We discovered actually Josh Hutcherson was the star of that. Oh, wow. And, um, and uh, with uh, Lorenzo Lamas and the late Dan Haggerty. And Gary was there for two days. And I mean, he was so much work, but he's freaking great in the movie. Is he very intimidating? Because he, he seems like that in interviews. So he's like pretty intimidating. He is... Um, He's really tall. He's a big guy. I mean, he's 6'3 or 6'4. But uh, the ultimate, someone was talking about their 40th birthday party. But um, a friend of mine, who uh, Mike, who owns a nightclub down in Orange County, on um, my uh, 40th birthday, so my, my, my band played at his nightclub, and he hired Gary Busey to sing Buddy Holly and the Cricket songs. So Gary Busey played my 40th birthday party as Buddy Holly, and I got to be a backup singer for him. So... Oh, so it all worked out in the end. All's well that ends well. Now, did he remember the uh, poster story? <laughs> I did not even try to bridge that. There's, just, <laughs> there's no way. I don't even know that he remembered that he had been in a movie I made. Oh, man, what year was that? I mean, if it was before the act, so it was like 89, maybe? Like, I mean, my the birthday party or the movie? The movie. Oh, no, no, no. The movie was 2005, and I'm 56, so it was right around the same time, right? Yeah. Wow. 2004. The movie was 2004. Yeah. So it was probably like six months after we shot that movie because we probably shot it in 2004. It came out in 2005. What and, about um, the, the poster thing, though? That was 2004? No, the poster yeah, thing was in the No, no, the poster thing was in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Man, it was pretty white. I've been married 20 years. So <laughs> that was probably like 1996 or seven or something. That's wild. We should try to get Gary on. <laughs> We'll never get past round one. You better pick one round and that's it. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's all, well, I will tell you, I will conduct this show the way I feel it's most fit. And he, he will take over. You know, he will take over. I've noticed that in interviews. He's totally takes yeah. over interviews. There's very few interviews. Power of the divine interest that comes in here. And, you know, he's, yeah. he's very, uh, but he's an intense guy. You can see his heart. His heart is good, you know. But I mean, he's got a definitely got a challenging set of wiring up there. Yeah, yeah I don't know if I could handle that, man. Maybe we got to start low and go with Jake Busey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Jake's got a pretty nice career going. He's yeah. good, dude. I heard he's a nice yeah. guy too. All right, so Mark, you dominated this one, man. Man, yeah, man. Jeez, we didn't even get to go to the uh, wild card round, and good thing because I had a Grateful Dead double live. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> oh, you, you're lucky because I'm not a Dead fan at all, and I've realized uh, as much as I try to be sort of like hmm, analytical as I was in the beginning, it got more and more personal. So this is really a it's really a fun show to do, and now I get like one like to listen to it. You know? That's why we like having you guys on, and we don't know you, we don't know what you're gonna say. And I think after the first couple of rounds, just like you said, you're not the first one to say that before. Mm-hmm. After like round one or two, you start taking the analytics out and you just whatever you like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, I think it makes it fun. Soon as he started talking about American Werewolf in London, I was like, I was going to uh, this. I'm open minded. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's sort of like Facebook. You know, who changes their opinion after reading something on Facebook? Um, <laughs> you said American Werewolf in London. You could talk about that documentary. I mean, and I know how brilliant, but it's that highfalutin and then the, the, mm -hmm. the uh, Omega Man. I haven't seen it, you know? Well, you should go do that tonight. Go watch Omega Man. Good. We'll come back to this, and we'll see if. Nah, I, I'm pretty sure Mark no, still a wins. Very, I have a, a, a funny uh, Char uh, Charlton Heston story. Oh, what is it? Um, that I, not not person was told to me by by a celebrity whose name I'll leave out of this, who was on the, the in the 70s and I guess maybe early 80s. There was the pro tennis tour, the celebrity tennis tour. It was like on Wide World of Sports. They would have celebrities playing tennis on TV, and it was celebrity tennis tour. And what we didn't know is when it wasn't on TV, like during the week, they were having these celebrities go to all these different cities and people would pay to see celebrities play tennis. I guess this is kind of like the pre-convention era, right? Yeah. But these guys were making a lot of money. And apparently um, Bill Cosby took the tennis very, very seriously. And he would have like John McEnroe style fits, you know? <laughs> and he would cuss and he would throw his racket. And he was pretty good when it was a televised show, apparently. Uh -huh. But when they were just like in, you know, wherever, in the middle of the country, he got like, you know, and several times, and Charlton Heston was a very proper gentleman, and he would take him aside. He said, you know, Bill, you know, we're not tennis pros. We're entertainers. People are paying a lot of money. They just want to have a good time. They want to see us. We should smile. We should wave. If a point is close, I mean, does it really matter, you know? And he really had extended himself to try and, you know, get Bill to calm down a little bit, apparently. Anyway, the next day, apparently, Bill just threw like a fit with an F-bomb. Wow. The guy that told Eddie Murphy not to curse. Smash his racket. He's like, and let you know, parents are covering their kids' ears. You know, they probably paid at the time, whatever, 25 bucks to see a celebrity tournament. And apparently... Uh, Charlton Heston on his personal stationery, you know, Charlton Heston at the top, wrote this beautiful, eloquent, um, dear Bill, you know that I respect you as an artist and comedian and entertainer. And, you know, we've had these conversations about, and Charlton Heston apparently was like Papa Bear on the tour, right? <laughs> um, but, and I understand that you're very competitive and I respect competitiveness in sports, this whole oration. But for me as an entertainer and my uh, person, you know, and my personal values, I just won't be able to play in matches with you anymore. <laughs> sincerely, sincerely, you know, Charlton Heston, you know, the big signature. And apparently Bill took out a post-it and wrote, Dear Chuck, sorry, we won't be playing tennis anymore. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> what a douche. I know why he was upset, though. Bill was the, uh, was the sleeper favorite to win that tournament. Oh, I didn't learn. Uh, there's a uh, other stuff I've heard about that tour, and um, you know, dark underbelly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this has got <laughs> celebrity has got tennis. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna leave it right there. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm already regretting that I brought up the uh, um, uh, uh, Sonny Bono quote. So I just, uh, <laughs> that was great. It was hilarious. It was great. I mean, one of the, the best part about our audience, though, is they all grew up through these decades. So a lot of them have thicker skin. We don't really get people complaining about the things we say as much as correcting us on things that we've picked. If we throw out like the wrong date or the wrong color, it's like yeah. that stuff's important. But if you just said like, you know, that quote, 
Nobody says anything. They don't care. They have thick skin. They're cool. Just uh, wait a minute. Oh fuck! My agent just dropped me. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, he just picked me up. What a day! <laughs> All right, Richard. Well, you were an excellent judge. Thanks for coming on the show. And I'm not just saying that because I won this game. <laughs> no, you can. Good reason. You can. <laughs> Before you get out of here, is there anything you want to plug? Tell our listeners where they can watch your latest films and check out some of your more current projects. Well, cool. So uh, Justice, a Western I'm real proud of, is streaming on Netflix. And um, on Amazon, there's several titles streaming. Some of the older fun ones, like Assault of the Party Nerds, is up there. And also Insight with uh, Sean Flannery and Christopher Lloyd, Natalie Z and... In the Dark with Elizabeth Rome and Richard Portnow. Um, if they just, you know, up, we're up on Amazon. And then, you know, my favorite, my favorite thing, and I'm putting a lot of energy into it, is the music now. We started playing out in, in, in nightclubs again with my band, The Checks, and my Double Life album is streaming everywhere. And when you talk about Revenge of the Nerds, the funny thing is I really did start out my career by ripping off Revenge of the Nerds and Animal House. It was totally a conscious decision. And now literally my, my best, one of my best day-to-day bub- buddies is Robert Carradine, you know, Lewis from Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. And he, play, he, plays, he plays lead guitar in my band. Really? No yeah. shit. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, um, he didn't play on my record because that, that, I made the record before we started playing out. And I, for once, decided I was going to play all the guitars on my record because I had never done that before. But the punchline is we, we started playing out in nightclubs. And we played a, a, a club called Molly Malone's. And then we played the Viper Room on Sunset in January. Yep. And then they booked us for a set. We sold it out and we, we, they booked us for a, a Saturday night. It was going to be April 4th and it got COVID canceled. So as soon as, as soon as that lifts up, we'll be back out in the nightclubs and maybe get a little tour going. That's awesome. But I, I appreciate nice. you guys letting me on the show. Yeah. We talked about that like maybe a couple months ago because Mark and I are both big, huge in the Revenge of the Nerds fans. Like we went to the 35 millimeter drive in two hours away from me and like eight hours away from him to have it covered by fog the whole time. So we had talked about it that night. We're like, Oh, we should get him on the show. He'd be a great judge. But I don't think he's like, he's not active on his Twitter or something like, well, I'm a buddy of his and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be seeing him tomorrow. So, well, that would be awesome. Oh, excellent. That would be great. I'll, I'll say, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're kind of dicks, but they're off. <laughs> kind of. They're tolerable dicks. No, no, no. He's a great guy. I will let him know about it. He, you know, um, he's doing the, uh, the new Lizzie McGuire and he's in, oh, he's in my Western. He's in justice. Sweet. Nice. I'm going to check that out tonight. Yeah. Now, didn't you film that in the same location where he did the Cowboys? Correct. Amundo. Yeah, correct. And nice. that's, and, and my, my first actually introduction to him was when we first moved to California, my brother and I went to the theater and saw the Cowboys and that was Robert Carradine's first movie with John Wayne. Yeah. I grew up watching that film. And, Fantastic uh, movie. And yeah, and then he at the um, gosh, now I'm thinking of the name of the the film ranch in, in Santa Fe, but it was the same ranch that they shot the Cowboys at that we shot Justice at. So this time he was kind of the elder statesman. Nice. Really fun, really fun, and he's just a great guy. All right. Well, once again, thank you, Richard, for coming on the show. Now, if you guys have missed an episode, you can always head back over to our website, DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, wherever podcasts are available. Now, Duelers, keep in mind, coming up very soon on the 28th of August, it's a Friday night, we're going to be doing Dueling Decades live trivia night. Man Crush, why don't you tell everybody about that? That's right. Get in quick. 
Go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Join our group because if you go in there, you're going to see the post right on the top is going to have the registration link. You're going to want to click that and register because only 100 people can be on there. We're limiting this to 100 people. We've done, I think we're on four or five. I forgot what number this is, but we found that 100 is like the sweet spot. And not only that, that's all we can host on Zoom. So we're <laughs> right. limiting it at 100. The numbers are going fast. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, go there, try to register it and see if there's any spots left. It's going to be fun. It's going to be all multiple choice. Very easy to do. The older ones, we had everybody typing. None of that shit. We're done with it. It's multiple choice. It's going to be very, very streamlined. So go there. And Joe Finley, why don't you tell all of our listeners what's coming up on the Miscast Commentary Podcast? Well, if you uh, just go back a couple of weeks, I actually just had a, a great series of interviews with the uh, host and producer of the George Lucas Talk Show that you can get on YouTube or on PlanetScum.Live. It's a great show. Uh, they were wonderful, and we just, and we talked at length about the Muppet movie. Uh, so you'll hear clips from that interview uh, in our commentary episode. And if you go to MissCastCommentary.com, you can hear the entire uncut interview right now. And our season officially ended. We're doing our best of episodes for the next couple of weeks, and then we're back with more commentary uh, at the end of August. Awesome. Can't wait for that. All right, duelers. So until next time, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.